Let's take a moment to pray together. Let's pray. Two little words, Lord, be still, and yet how hard they are to really hear and act upon. Uh, Life is so busy, whether we're at the stage of life where we're working or we're retired, there's always more that we can be doing. And it's hard in the midst of that to be still, to switch off from the distractions and the calls upon our time and to reflect on life in your presence pray, to read, to think, to be still. But we thank you for this hour that we have on a Sunday morning of enforced stillness, where we choose to be here so that we might, in our own way, be still in your presence and in the company of the faithful here in the parish of Belhelvey. So thank you for this time. And we pray that as we uh, attend to your word, that you would bring us the particular thing that we need to be hearing today in our life situation, whatever it might be. Thank you that you know us through and through, and you know what we need to hear and do. So be with us this morning, because we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Work fascinates me, somebody once said. I can stare at it for hours. Every preacher knows that feeling when it comes to preparation for Sundays. We all have our our methods of, of doing things, but method is just one element of a much more complex, nuanced process that results after appropriate gestation in the birth of a sermon each and every week, apart from the six I got off a year. And although that's a a spiritual process, it's also a very human process. When it comes to sermon prep, clergy don't have a direct line to the Almighty. I wish in a way we did. It would be much easier if God could just fax one down to me, but it doesn't happen that way. We read We study, we pray, we reflect on life, and God willing, something emerges out of that mix that's worth communicating, because that's what it's all about. Not just having to say something, which you do every Sunday, but having something to say. There's a difference between having to say something and having something to say, something that hopefully, God willing, draws us all closer to God. But if God is the constant in this weekly endeavor, we ourselves, the clergy, are one of the variables. As human beings, our moods go up and down depending on tiredness, exercise, and appetite. We have spells when we feel close to God and times when we find ourselves wondering what on earth this is all about. In short, clergy are no different from anybody else. The only difference is that we are set aside For this work, this business of treasuring and telling these ancient stories so that they speak a word into our lives today. And it's a challenge. Every writer knows what they call the tyranny of the empty page. 
Once a week, having done all my reading and research, I pull out a sheet of A4 and try to get my thoughts down in paper. Sometimes I have to tell you that paper stays blank for a long time. But there are other times when ideas begin to tumble out, like little kids getting off a bus at a fun fair and racing off in all kinds of directions. And rather than try to corral them all, the discipline there is to round up two or three of the little brats and wipe their noses and smooth down their hair so they can be respectably presented to you in the form of a sermon. And that's how things went when I spent time sitting with Psalm 124. Lots of ideas scattering in lots of different directions. And I've corralled a few for you this morning. Here's the first wee insight I want to offer. The psalmist begins with these words, what if the Lord had not been on our side? And I found myself wondering that for myself. What if the Lord had not been on my side? How would life be different for me if I didn't have faith? How much different would it be? You see, Israel had this amazing history. They've been captives in Egypt for over 400 years, and then with signs and wonders, God led them out of slavery through Moses, parting the Red Sea, dispensing with their slave masters, and providing for them on this arduous journey through the desert that took another 40 years, helping them overcome the more powerful tribes around them so they could finally settle in the promised land. And with that history... They could look back and say, if God hadn't been on our side, none of that would have happened. Our enemies would have destroyed us. The waters would have carried us away. They had this huge story to tell, and we're hearing echoes of that in Psalm 124. But my story isn't huge. It's rather ordinary, to be honest. And I'm pretty sure that's the same for most of you. We've all read about these people with remarkable testimonies about how and when they came to faith and how things have turned around for them and God blessed them. But most of us haven't had that kind of a journey. Put our before and after pictures side by side and you'd have to look pretty closely to see the difference. I don't know if any of you have used this um, app on Facebook that's available just now called FaceApp. You put a picture of yourself in and then the computer kind of plays around with it and it can make you younger, which I think we'd all be quite happy with. Or it can show you what you would be like if you're older, or it can swap your gender, give you long hair, whatever you want to do. There's a, there's a particular filter on it called the Hitman filter, which is meant to make you look like a bit of a hard man, a bit of a rogue. And I put my picture in and applied the Hitman filter. It didn't look any different at all. The bald head and the wee beard. Sometimes our before and after pictures may not seem very different. Or maybe there is no before and after for you. Maybe you've always had some level of faith and you'd struggle to point to a time or a place that you might call a conversion experience. So given that, how would you finish the psalm? How would I finish the psalm? What would we have to say? Has knowing God 
made much difference to our lives. That was my first thought. And I have to say, it made me feel more than a little guilty. I always remember, and I've spoken to you before, about a poster I saw in my student days, particularly in the days when there was a lot of persecution of Christians in communist lands. And it said, if you were put on trial for the crime of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? And that stayed with me for many years. But hot on the heels of that thought came a second one, which is a little more encouraging. Most of the people that we read about in the Scriptures seem larger than life. By definition, we end up reading their stories, not necessarily because they were remarkable people, but because they had a remarkable role to play in God's unfolding plans. And we could rhyme them off. Abraham, Moses, Ruth, David, Elijah, Mary, Peter, Paul. All ordinary in one sense, and yet ending up playing an extraordinary part in the story. And that's why we are still today reading about them and trying to learn from their experience. But here's the thing. For every name in Scripture that we know, there are 10,000 names of faithful men and women we never get to hear about. Men and women just going about the ordinary things of their lives with faith and with trust. You and I aren't called to be Moses or Peter or Mary or Ruth, and we shouldn't beat ourselves up for that. We're called to be who God made us to be and to love Him and serve Him in the places that He's put us in. If we do that faithfully, He may do remarkable things through us. He may not. But that's His business, not ours. Ours is just to be faithful. Israel had this dramatic story to tell, but for ordinary folk like us, all that drama might seem a bit hard to relate to. And I want to suggest that that's okay. As long as we have something to say when people ask us what difference it makes to us to have God in our lives, to know God. Peter Nielsen was the author of the influential Church Without Walls report, which is nearly 20 years old now, and there still has never been a better piece of work done on what needs to happen within the Church of Scotland to take us into the future. And Peter tells a story about taking a trip to Skye with his wife and having breakfast with some other tourists in their B&B. And as you do, they get talking about their jobs. And when Peter confessed that he was a minister, and I think confess is probably the right word there, one of the others, who was a Swiss scientist, gave him a hard time. How could an intelligent person these days possibly believe in all that mumbo-jumbo? Before he could give a reply, Peter's wife, who was in the throes of depression, spoke up and said, all I know is that if God wasn't real, I couldn't make it through the day. And that stopped the argument. Later on that evening, an American couple who'd been part of the conversation came up to Peter and said how impressed they'd been by what they'd heard at breakfast time. But it wasn't anything you said, they added, swiftly bringing him down a peg or two. It was what Dorothy said, Peter's wife. 
we've never heard anybody speak that honestly about their faith. Most of us aren't called to persuade others of the truth through debate and argument. Great if we can do it, but that's not what most of us are called to. We're all, however, called to witness to the truth of God in our own lives, even if it's just the admission that we couldn't get through the day without Him. There's a remarkable power in that kind of simple, honest confession of faith. It doesn't have to be clever. It doesn't have to be chapter and verse. It doesn't have to be fine arguments. It just has to be from the heart of your own experience, lived truth. That will help. That will work. One last thought to add. The psalmist says, what if the Lord had not been on our side? And I found myself asking, what does it look like and feel like when God is on our side? That's one that's really worth thinking about. I remember when I first started playing rugby at secondary school, there were a couple of lads in the team who were really big for their age. I mean, five, eight, and 10 stone in first year. Big, solid farmer's boys. They were twice the size of most of us. I think they could have got a game for Ireland yesterday, but we'll leave that in the back burner. And when we lined up with those boys in our side, the opposition were quaking in their boots. All we had to do was get the ball to Booth or Hayburn, and they would just do the rest. Those of you who watched rugby will remember the 95 World Cup when Jonah Lomu, this six foot four, 20 stone winger, ran through the England back line like they were made of straw. It was a wee bit like that every week in junior rugby at Ballymena Academy. But a few years later, it was a different story. Suddenly, everybody had grown taller and put on a few pounds. These farmers' lads were still good players, but it wasn't a walk in the park for us anymore. We still won more than we lost, but everybody left the field bloodied and bruised. Sometimes people assume wrongly that having God on your side is going to make everything a walk in the park. Some ministers preach like that. Some Christians try to sell the faith to others on that basis, but they're just wrong. The psalmist doesn't say, the Lord was on our side. Great! Nothing happened to us. We were fine. He remembers times when our enemies attacked us, when they got furious with us, when the floods came and the waters threatened to cover us. Bad stuff still came our way, he says, but in the midst of those things, God was on our side. Now, I know I thump this particular tub on a regular basis, but I keep coming up against this issue pastorally. When troubles come, as they do for all of us, folk often take that as a sign of God's anger, or worse still, His abandonment. So let me say this again loud and clear. Having God on your side doesn't preserve you from troubles. It preserves you in them. 
There's a huge difference there. And it's right there in the psalm. Let us thank the Lord, he says. Why? Because he kept us from all harm? No, we thank him because he has not let our enemies destroy us. If you have faith, you'll be preserved even in the midst of the worst that life can throw at you. That bereavement you suffered, well, you're still here, recovering, finding meaning again. That illness you're fighting, whatever happens, you're not going to let it break your spirit. And even if the worst happens, you have faith that death is not the end. In Christ, death is a semicolon, not a full stop. Those circumstances that you're facing, the challenges of all of that, you're not going to let it rule over you. You have another story going on in your life, one that keeps you hoping for better and looking for life even in the midst of those challenges. These things which all have the potential to be overwhelming don't have the last word in your life. God has the last word. And you trust him to make it a good word. And that brings me to one last thing I want to say this morning. I've already mentioned that this psalm looks back to the Exodus, the great formative event in the life of the people of Israel, Moses leading them out of captivity into a new beginning. But when Christians read about the Exodus, they always see a deeper meaning in those stories, because for us, Moses and his work of liberation was just a foreshadow of Jesus and his work of salvation. Moses saved Israel from slavery in Egypt, but Jesus worked saved us eternally from the power of sin and death. He was leading, fulfilling in his own body, a second exodus with eternal consequences. And in a way, this morning's psalm could have been written with Jesus in mind, even though it predates him by a thousand years. He took the worst the world could throw at him, including abuse, suspicion, betrayal, and an agonizing death. Take a snapshot of his life at any one of a score of different times, and you could be forgiven for saying, well, if God's on his side, why is this happening? And yet God couldn't have been more on his side. And his resurrection was the final and conclusive proof of that. Let us thank the Lord who has not let our enemies destroy us, said the psalmist. We have escaped like a bird from a hunter's trap. The trap is broken and we are free. Those words resonate down through the centuries, spoken first by the psalmist, reflecting on the Exodus, but taken up by Christ as he stands smiling beside an empty tomb. The trap is broken and we are free. And that great Exodus story of resurrection 
is the backdrop against which the Christian lives out his or her life, her little life, his little life. That great story and its consequences are the end toward which we're living, the death of death and all that goes with it, and the coming of new life even now. John Calvin once said that the church is a place of many resurrections, and he was right. These lives that we lead may not seem extraordinary, set alongside the story of Israel or the great heroes and heroines of the church, and the truth is there are times when we find ourselves unmoved or perplexed or even angry as we try to walk with God, but every act of kindness Every Godward movement, every setting aside of the wrong and embracing of the right is a mini-resurrection, a sign of the work that God has begun in us and as sure as Christ has risen, will one day bring to completion. That's the hope that Psalm 124 brings us. Those long hours of head-scratching help me see that in the end, this psalm isn't about us and what we do. It's about God and what God has done and is doing. He's in the process of saving this world from everything that mars it. And throughout it all, He is on our side. Amen. And thanks be to God for His Word.